Hi everyone, I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories and let you know how you can help bring them home. Now, when it comes to using the family to get for Russia to get what they want, if that's the case, they've picked the wrong family because I'm not going to carry water for the Russian authorities. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us. I never thought that my mother, Nahi Tagavi, will ever have a link to negotiations in Vienna about the JCPOA. That's so crazy. People who have never given up hope. Trevor told his girlfriend to tell me to, to be strong. So I'm trying to be strong for Trevor. You know, if, if Trevor can cope with what he's dealing with, exactly. we, we can sure cope with the stress. People who will never stop working to reunite their families. We'd like to meet with the president. Uh, we believe that, you know, he has, uh, he's surrounded by lots of uh, experienced and educated advisors, but I don't believe that any of them have ever had a, a child taken hostage by a foreign country, especially not a superpower like Russia. And we'll be right there by their side until their loved one comes back home. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. I'm Darren Nair, and I've been campaigning with many of these families for years. When I first started campaigning with these families, I noticed they struggled to get the media attention they needed. So I decided to create this podcast, which is a safe space for the families to speak as long as they need to about their loved ones and what needs to be done to bring them home. Nobody can prepare you for what our family is going through. Even if someone had told me one year before, in one year, this is going to happen, prepare yourself. It's impossible. Thank you for listening and welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. In December 2018, American citizen and Marine veteran Paul Whelan was arrested in Russia by the FSB, which is a successor agency of the Soviet-era KGB. Paul was in the country to attend a friend's wedding. He was arrested on false charges, put through a sham trial, and sentenced to 16 years hard labor in a Russian penal colony. In August 2019, another American citizen and Marine veteran, Trevor Reed, was also arrested in Russia by the FSB. He was in the country to visit his longtime girlfriend and learn Russian for his international studies courses at the University of North Texas. Trevor too was arrested on false charges, put through a sham trial, and sentenced to nine years in prison in a Russian labor camp. In February 2022, shortly before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Brittany Griner, an American WNBA athlete and Team USA Olympic gold medalist, was detained in Russia at Sheremetyevo Airport outside of Moscow after customs officials alleged they found vape cartridges that contain oil derived from cannabis in her luggage. She had 0.7 grams of cannabis oil in her luggage. Now, for those who are unaware how much oil this is, it is roughly the size of a raisin. Brittany's legal team said she used this for medicinal purposes and accidentally included it in her luggage as she was rushing to pack. Brittany owned up to having this oil in her luggage, 
she was returning to Russia to play for a Russian basketball club where she has competed in the WNBA off-season since 2014. Brittany was put through a sham trial and eventually charged with international drug smuggling and sentenced to nine and a half years of hard labour in a penal colony, a sentence longer than others convicted of similar crimes in Russia. The Russians apparently made it clear to the US that they would hold Brittany Griner until they got Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who was jailed in the US, freed. Now, if you look at all three of these cases, you'll notice a pattern. A pattern of state-sponsored hostage-taking, also known as hostage diplomacy. Russia detained these three Americans to use them as bargaining chips to extract concessions from the United States. All three of these Americans were classified as wrongfully detained by the United States government. On 27 April 2022, Trevor Reed was freed in a prisoner swap between the United States and Russia. Trevor was released in exchange for Konstantin Yaroshenko, a Russian drug smuggler who was convicted and halfway through a 20-year prison sentence in the US. On 8 December 2022, Brittany Griner was freed in a prisoner swap between the US and Russia for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who had already served 12 years in prison in the US and was due to be released in 2029. Paul Whelan was left behind both times and remains in a Russian labour camp to this day. We've interviewed Paul Whelan's sister Elizabeth Whelan five times on this podcast, more times than anyone else. We tell all the families that we campaign for that we'll be right by their side until their loved ones come back home, and we mean it. We'll keep you up to date on their cases through SITREP pods and breaking news pods. Today, we speak to Elizabeth Whelan once again. Elizabeth, we're sorry that you, Paul, and your family are still going through this nightmare. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much, Darren. I really appreciate you having me on again. Now, as I always say, hostage diplomacy doesn't happen to everyone, but it can happen to anyone. Because this doesn't happen to everyone, not enough people pay attention. Don't get me wrong, I understand there are many bad things going on in the world today and nobody has the capacity to pay attention to everything. This applies to all of us. Elizabeth, for our listeners who don't know what happened to your brother, can you please give them an overview? Absolutely. Um, in 2018, in December, Paul went to Moscow to help an American friend who was marrying a Russian woman uh, with the wedding and to help with escorting U.S. guests around Moscow. He was set up by the FSB, which is the modern version of the KGB, um, and given a USB drive that they said had state secrets on it. This was by somebody he had met in Russia before and thought was a friend. Paul was arrested on charges of espionage, uh, which are patently false. And he was held in the Fortovo prison in Moscow for 19 months. Um, and then now has ever since then for the rest of the four years and four months has been at a prison camp in IK called IK-17 in Mordovia, uh, which is a forced labor camp. At about the 16-month mark when he was in Lofortovo, he was uh, subjected to a sham trial and given a 16-year sentence. So that is how we got to basically where we are, Paul being imprisoned wrongfully, uh, called wrongfully detained by the U.S. government for now about four years and four months. And as you said, he has had to watch two other Americans who were arrested after he was and brought home uh, before he has been. And now he's concerned about being left for a third time. 
I'm sorry to hear that. Um, Elizabeth, we last spoke in December last year, shortly after Brittany Griner was released in a prisoner swap. And as you said, Paul was left behind for the second time. Since then, several things have happened, some good, some bad. So your brother Paul passed the four-year anniversary of his wrongful imprisonment in Russia in December, and he turned 53 years old a few months ago. American citizen and Navy veteran Taylor Dudley, held in Russia, was released. He was held in Russia for nine months. On 31st March this year, Wall Street Journal reporter and US citizen Evan Gershkovich was detained in Russia. He has been charged with espionage, which is what Paul was charged with as well. He's also being held in the same prison Paul was held in shortly after his arrest. The US government has designated Evan as wrongfully detained and has called for his immediate release. Can you tell us more about these events as well as anything else that has happened since we last spoke? Um, well, let's see, where do I start? Yes, you know, uh, Brittany came home um, without Paul. That was a situation where uh, the Russians really forced a choice um, not between um, Paul and Brittany, which a lot of people think, um, but forced a situation whereby the U.S. government had to choose to bring somebody home or bring no one home. And so they brought home Brittany Griner. And our family you know, was fully in support of seeing her come home. Nobody should have to, to stay in uh, Russia. But it was very difficult on us to know that Paul was still there. As you said, then after that, uh, it was the four-year mark um, for the time he's been held. And then his 53rd birthday, uh, which is I, I can't even imagine what that is like to pass birthday after birthday in, in a prison. I can't really speak to, uh, to Taylor Dudley's, um, uh, uh, either arrest or release. Uh, that was not a, a, um, case that was sort of classified as a wrongful detention, but I think everyone was glad to see him, uh, come out of Russia. Uh, so that, I believe that was sort of a more of a humanitarian release situation. And, and now we have this arrest of, of Evan and, like you said, on exactly the same um, types of charges, espionage. It was the FSB doing the arresting. He's being held in the Fort of Vaux, um, and he is likely to be put through a sham trial as well. Um, I don't have more detail about the case than that, um, than, than what we have been seeing in the media. Thank you for that. So, Elizabeth, our first episode with you was in September 2021. When people like Paul or Evan are wrongfully imprisoned by a country like Russia, information about them will need to be shared with many entities within the US government, which requires a privacy waiver to be signed. Another thing is when Paul and Evan are being detained, someone else will need to pay their bills and handle their affairs. This requires this person to be granted power of attorney. Can you please tell us more about this and where people can go to get some help with this if they need it? Well, that's a really good question because there are a number of things that the Russian authorities have started doing with Americans. Um, and one is denying them consular access. And that means that sometimes they will let other people in to see the prisoners, such as prison monitors or even lawyers, but they will not allow, um, allow the actual U.S. government officials to 
come and visit the people who they've imprisoned. Sometimes, so for Paul, it was six days. I think for Trevor, it was 12. And for Brittany, it was a, a month or something like that. So this is something they've started to, you know, to use to their effect. Because the Privacy Act is uh, basically a law that says the U.S. government isn't going to share information about you unless you sign a waiver, you know, uh, saying who you'd like to have that information shared with. Um and that means, unfortunately, that until they get that signed document, that they can't share information with Congress. They can't share information, uh, you know, beyond your family. Sometimes certain family members may not be able to have information. So it really does tie the, uh, the hands of the U.S. government in terms of getting action organized to help out somebody who may possibly be wrongfully detained. Of course, the Russian authorities know that. And then, as you mentioned, the privacy, uh, the, the uh, power of attorney. This is another piece of, of uh, paper. It took us, I think, six months to get a power of attorney signed um, for Paul, so that one of our family members could manage his finances and pay bills and deal with taxes and all of those things. It is very difficult to get both of these pieces of paper signed in prison because the uh, the people who've done the arresting have to let the consular officials have access, have to allow a piece of paper to be passed back and forth and signed. And sometimes they have all sorts of rules and regulations they make up at the last minute to make that not possible. In the meantime, and this has certainly happened before, uh, detainees find that their their finances fall apart, their bills are paid late, um, uh, you know, a family member doesn't have access to the bank account to pay things for them. And so they come home from these ordeals with devastated finances, uh, taxes in arrears, credit card charges, uh, all sorts of things that happen. And so, the, you know, getting those pieces of paperwork signed, those are important. And the Russians know that and will do what they can to prevent that from happening. As I mentioned earlier, the US State Department has designated both Paul and Evan as wrongfully detained. For those of you unaware of how the US government works to free American citizens held hostage or wrongfully imprisoned abroad, let me give you some background and some details on the process. So there are two types of hostage takers, non-state actors and state actors. Non-state actors consist of terrorist groups and criminal organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, FARC rebels, and Somali pirates. State actors are countries like Iran, Russia, Venezuela, China, Syria, North Korea, and more. Ten years ago, the majority of Americans held captive abroad were held by non-state actors in places like Syria, Yemen, and Somalia. Today, the majority of Americans held hostage abroad are held by state actors like Iran, Venezuela, Russia, China, and Syria. This is based on the publicly known cases. Before 2014, it was totally up to the President of the United States to decide whether or not help was given to American hostages. After the hostage-taking and brutal murder of Americans in Syria in 2014, including freelance journalist James Foley, families of these hostages were appalled at the way the US government handled the situation and felt they were never a priority. President Obama then ordered a review of US hostage policy. This National Counterterrorism Center hostage review culminated in Presidential Policy Directive 30, also known as PPD-30, which was focused on Americans held hostage by non-state actors, but not really on Americans held hostage by state actors. This PPD-30 led to the creation of the following entities within the US government. 
the hostage recovery fusion cell, which is a multi-agency team based at FBI headquarters, the Office of the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, which is responsible for coordinating State Department's family, congressional and diplomatic engagements, the Hostage Response Group, which provides updates to the National Security Council. These entities, when put together, combined with third parties that work with them, are what we call the hostage enterprise. Now, as I mentioned earlier, TPD-30 only really covered Americans held hostage by non-state actors and not Americans taken hostage by countries. In March 2007, American citizen Robert Levinson, who worked for the FBI and CIA, went missing on the Iranian island of Kish. He was presumed dead a few years ago, and his family was notified that he most likely died in captivity. The Levinson family didn't get the support they needed from the US government, so they worked with other organizations to lobby Congress to create the Robert Levinson Hostage Recovery and Hostage Taking Accountability Act, which enshrined PPD-30 into law and included a list of criteria to determine whether or not an American imprisoned abroad by a state is wrongfully detained. If an American meets this criteria and is designated as wrongfully detained, the US government then works to secure their release. This Levinson Act covers US citizens and lawful permanent residents and also includes tools for the government to use to punish the hostage takers. Now, here's the list of criteria within Section 2, Subsection A of the Levinson Act, which is used to determine whether or not an American held by another country is wrongfully detained. Number one, United States officials receive or possess credible information indicating innocence of the detained individual. Number two, the individual is being detained solely or substantially because he or she is a United States national. Number three, the individual is being detained solely or substantially to influence United States government policy or to secure economic or political concessions from the United States government. Number four, the detention appears to be because the individual sought to obtain, exercise, defend, or promote freedom of the press, freedom of religion, or the right to peacefully assemble. Number five, the individual is being detained in violation of the laws of the detaining country. Number six, independent non-governmental organizations or journalists have raised legitimate questions about the innocence of the detained individual. Number seven, the United States mission in the country where the individual is being detained has received credible reports that the detention is a pretext for an illegitimate purpose. Number eight, the individual is detained in a country where the Department of State has determined in its annual human rights report that the judicial system is not independent or impartial, is susceptible to corruption, or is incapable of rendering just verdicts. Number nine, the individual is being detained in inhumane conditions. Number 10, due process of law has been sufficiently impaired so as to render the detention arbitrary. And finally, number 11, United States diplomatic engagement is likely necessary to secure the release of the detained individual. Now, that was some background on how the US hostage enterprise was created and what organizations and laws are currently in place. What comes next is even more important, and that is implementation. The Levinson Act requires the Secretary of State to make the determination of who is wrongfully detained based on the criteria I just read out, 
the Secretary gets input from different stakeholders, including the Office of the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, the State Department Regional Office, lawyers at the State Department, as well as other groups, and they then try to build a consensus on whether or not an American is wrongfully detained. This information then goes up to the Secretary who then makes this hard decision or delegates this responsibility to the Deputy Secretary of State. If a person held abroad is designated as wrongfully detained, their case will transfer from Consular Affairs to the Office of the US Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, who will then start working to secure their release. Elizabeth Evan Gershkovich was rightly designated as wrongfully detained by the US State Department within 10 days of being arrested. How long did the US government take to designate your brother, Paul, as wrongfully detained? Uh, it was at least 13 months. Um, but we also, we sort of bridged the implementation or the, uh, the uh, approval of the Robert Levinson Act. Paul was, uh, as I mentioned, arrested in December of 2018. And I think it was March of 2019 that the Robert Levinson Act was introduced. Um, so we ended up lobbying for it. Uh, people kept saying to us, oh no, Paul's going to be home long before you need the Levinson Act, but that was not the case. And so I think it was a fall of 2020 when it was when the Levinson Act was finally passed. Um, and I have been really pleased to see that, you know, uh, as quickly as possible, we're moving from the fact that an American has been arrested on what I call a, a red flag sort of set of charges like espionage, that um, that determination of wrongful detention happens very quickly. Now, we have seen both with um, Brittany Griner's case and with Evans that uh, that determination happened quite fast. I'm hoping that... Um, when somebody who is arrested who doesn't have quite the public exposure of both of these two individuals, that we'll see wrongful detention determinations moving uh, just that quickly. I am not sure right now that we are implementing that um, as smoothly as I hope to see it implemented in the future. Elizabeth, you, Paul, and your family have been going through this trauma for over four years now. I've spoken to many family members with loved ones held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. They're going through one of the worst periods of their lives. They've had to put their own lives on hold. Every morning when they wake up, they think about what they need to do today to free their loved one. Every night when they go to bed, they ask themselves, did they do enough to free their loved one? They stop socializing with friends. They feel guilty every time they rest. They feel guilty when they eat because they think to themselves, is my loved one eating or starving right now? How have you and family been able to cope with this trauma for so long? Well, we we really haven't had a choice, have we? I mean, you just, as long as it goes on, you have to figure out a way to survive. But I have to say it's devastating. And it's been devastating to all of us on different levels. I mean, we're a relatively strong family. And, you know, we feel pretty affectionate towards each other. But now you have to interact with, with each other almost as a strategic business team. Um, and that brings up different types of relationships. And you have to find a way to sort of work with each other for as long as it takes. Um, and, and it's very, it's exhausting. My parents are uh, in their mid eighties and no one's getting any younger. Um, I just turned 60 this last year and I can feel the amount of energy I have for dealing with the drama and the roller coaster of this. Uh, you know, it, 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 I'm not getting more energy as the years go by. 
And then I think there's always this myth that we're all all struggling with, and that is that, of course, a family is going to dig in and do whatever it takes, you know, spend whatever they have. Um, and basically, you do. You end up depleting – people deplete their retirement accounts, their savings accounts. Um, I've been to D.C. 23 times, and um, actually because the Senate wanted to pass a uh, a – piece of legislation. It's been introduced. It hasn't gone to vote yet. Uh, specifically around the idea of helping families be paid to, you know, have some have some resources to go down to DC and get these classified briefings or the information that we need. They um and also to pay for support for detainees after they come home, post-isolation um, support. Uh, there is a bill for both of those resources going through um uh, through the Senate at the moment. And in order to su help support that, I submitted um, a spreadsheet basically to the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and saying, you know, basically, this is how much it's cost. Uh, and I came up with a figure, and this is a very ballpark figure of what I've spent and uh, lost wages as well over that time of about $97,000. So that's a huge amount of money for somebody who is, you know, like me, independently employed. And you don't want to put a spotlight on that because this isn't about me and my suffering. This is about Paul and his suffering. But I have started to talk about it a little bit more publicly because it's an indicator of what goes on with family members, you know, so not just my family uh, and my brothers have all experienced their own, you know, every time you go on media, sometimes some of these media outlets want you to rent a studio. Uh, sometimes you're losing work that you can't get back or spending your vacation or sick time in order to make appearances. So, you know, here are all these positive things that are happening, right? You get the meetings with people in DC, you get to be on uh, television talking about your loved one. And there's this cost. And as the years go by and you have to keep doing it, it is very difficult to, to regain those resources, to be able to continue to have them to use into the future. So, so the family suffers personally, uh, emotionally. They suffer from a resource point of view. And it becomes even more – the frustration with not having your loved one home just builds over that time. And so I was very keen to help support uh, what the Senate is trying to do, which is to come up with some funding. So at least twice a year, members of of a detainee's family can have some help getting to D.C. to, to have those personal – in-person conversations with, with uh, officials, because you do get more information in person than you do over the phone or over a Zoom call. Um, it's really important. But I think I have heard some terrible stories of people selling their homes, selling their cars, losing their jobs, having to take different jobs, to have the time and resources to be able to advocate for their loved one. And I would hope to see as we move forward with the Robert Levinson Act that an understanding of what it actually takes for a family to advocate. And that doesn't even include what you do to support the, the loved one himself, the, the detainee. So we have a separate GoFundMe just to help Paul, just to get food and supplies to him. Uh, we've used it for translating documents and, uh, and other things. So there's this constant need for resources as the detention continues on. Again, Elizabeth, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I've interviewed many families in the same situation as yours. And the one 
silver lining, I guess there is, is that almost all these families realize that this experience brings brings them closer together and they realize how much, how important they are to each other. And that brings them a lot closer. So I guess that's the one positive of this experience. Um, I know some family members who try to keep their loved one's spirits up by spreading the good news to keep giving them hope. So let's say they speak to their loved one three days a week and three good things happen today. They don't tell their loved one everything all at once during that first call. They spread out the news throughout the three calls so they can give some good news on each call. How do you and your family keep Paul's spirits up when you speak to him? Well, it's it's my parents who are having the conversations with Paul. The Russians will not allow him to call any number that he wants to, uh, but he can call their landline. He can call the U.S. Embassy, um, and, and he's been able to make some other calls over time, but most of the conversations, the you know, the conversations to get him through the week are the ones he has with my parents. And although they often have, you know, small bits of information to, to tell him, often they just let him talk um, because he has very few people he can speak to in English during the course of his day. So that 10 or 15 minutes might be the only time he gets to use English all day long. Um he has no other outlet. He's in Mordovia. He's eight hours away, eight hour drive away from Moscow. Uh, the embassies have come to see him, which is really marvelous, but that only happens every few months. So those calls to my folks are his way of expressing his frustration, his, you know, something funny happened or something interesting that happened. And to talk about the conditions in the prison camp. I don't know at this point, four years and four months of it, whether anyone's trying to buoy Paul's hope in any sort of specific way. We tell him when something good has happened. We read him articles, you know, that cover his situation in the, uh, in the paper. But when he heard, for example, about, um, Evan's arrest, you know, he was, he was devastated at the thought of another American being arrested and that he might be left for a third time. And so his ability to be able to express that to us, I mean, we can't bundle that in any kind of hopeful message and say, well, you know, it, it won't happen a third time. How, how do we know it won't happen a third time? You know, they're, they're, you want to be optimistic, but you have to be realistic at the same time. I understand. Um, Elizabeth, you and your family have been campaigning to free Paul for over four years now. Unlike Evan, you don't have the Wall Street Journal campaigning on your behalf. How have you approached public campaigning and what advice would you give those campaigning to free Evan? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I want to start this part of the conversation off by saying we have no bad feelings against Trevor or Brittany or Evan or any of the resources any of them have um, or have been able to use. Uh, each family is going to use every tool they have at their disposal um, to raise awareness around their loved one and to press the U.S. government to get someone home. But it has been pretty crazy to look at the amount of attention that Evan was able to get from uh, not just the Wall Street Journal, from uh, other journalists and media sources right away, um, deservedly so. But it made us think back to those early weeks and months when Paul was arrested and we were busy fighting bad faith stories about 
you know, was he a spy and why was he there and victim blaming and everything else. And anything but a positive story or a story that brought attention to the fact that Paul was wrongfully detained and should be out of there. So it's it's quite a change to see that sort of um, that effort. And I think when it comes to, you know, giving ad- advice to Evan's family about, uh, you know, how to advocate publicly there they already have that support the support that most families want um and i think the difficulty comes and i and i i don't i hope they don't find this out because i hope there's a way to get evan and paul home much sooner than this but it can be difficult and i think Brittany griner's team found this as well even though she had a lot of celebrity that if something dramatic is not happening it is difficult to keep your loved one in the news um you know, if they're not sick, uh, at a hearing, at a trial, or being sentenced. We found that once Paul sort of was disappeared off to IK-17, that it became really hard to, uh, you know, to kind of keep him back in the news. Of course, over time, more and more events have been happening. Paul himself has been able to reach out to media a few times. We do, we continue to do all we can. But it is important to remind both publicly and the U.S. government on a continual basis that your loved one is still wrongfully detained uh, and not to let the bright, shiny objects of other news or other crises come along um, to to detract. Now, the Russian authorities are the culprits here. The air practice of a hostage diplomacy may result in short-term gains, but in the long term, the air country will suffer. If foreign nationals continue to be taken hostage in Russia, businesses will stop sending their foreign employees to work in Russia, academic institutions won't be able to attract foreign researchers and students, and the same goes for the medical and pharmaceutical industry in Russia. I appreciate Russia is already and rightly heavily sanctioned due to the unjust invasion of Ukraine. But if they continue their hostage diplomacy, things will get worse for their economy. Elizabeth, in your opinion, what should the Russian authorities do? <laughs> well, they should free Paul and, and Evan immediately. Um, that's what they should be doing. Um, and in I continue to hold the view that because they are continuing with this hostage diplomacy, that it is just showing how extremely weak and chaotic things must be at the Kremlin. Um, this is not the activity of a strong country that knows how to have a civilized conversation with another country. Um, you know, this is, this is terrorism. This is, uh, you know, this, it, it's gangster moves. It's it's not something that um, that a mature nation does, and it certainly doesn't make them look very good on on the world stage. I think that when it comes to you know uh, us trying to to deter the Russians from from doing this sort of activity, sanctions and that sort of thing, you know, uh, that we have been putting in place are, are very useful. Um, I. Imagine that there are Russians who realize themselves that what their authorities are doing um, is very wrong. Um, and, but the internal situation is such that they can't speak out about this. Um, I can't imagine that there's any way at this point to put any public pressure from Russia on the Russian authorities to make them release Paul and Evan. And I certainly know from a media point in the West, um, so much media has been cut out independent independent media sources within russia have been kicked out uh you know they've been restricted from receiving information that um 
that we no longer try to address the Russian authorities through the media uh, and, and, you know, sort of demanding them to do the right thing. But really, there is only one right thing to do, and that is to stop hostage diplomacy and to let our people go. So I've been campaigning to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world for over seven years now. One of the most important things I've learned about hostage diplomacy is whether you give up a concession to free your citizen held hostage by another country, or you do nothing at all and leave them there, the hostage-taking state will continue to take more of your citizens hostage. Let me give you some Russia-specific examples. Last year, the US freed two Americans held in Russia in a prisoner swap, Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner. What the Russians did a few months later was wrongfully imprison another American, Evan Gershkovich. So you can argue here that giving up concessions led to more Americans being taken hostage. This may be true, but then here's another example. In December 2018, the Russians detained Paul Whelan. The US government did not give up any concessions and weren't able to free him. So if giving up concessions incentivizes more hostage taking, then the opposite should also be true. But that's not what happened. In August 2019, the Russians took another American hostage, Trevor Reed. The US government, again, didn't give up any concessions to free Paul or Trevor, so that should mean Russia had no reason to take any more hostages. But they did. In February 2022, they took Brittany Griner. So my point here is this. Whether you give up a concession to free your citizen held hostage by another country, or you do nothing at all and leave them there, the hostage-taking state will continue to take more of your citizens hostage. The only way to stop hostage diplomacy is to punish the individuals responsible within the hostage-taking state and raise awareness of this risk so your citizens stop going to these countries. I also appreciate the predicament the US government is currently in. If they punish the Russians for their hostage diplomacy right now, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich will be made to suffer even more. Also, the US already had a travel advisory in place for Russia which has a level 4 do not travel to Russia rating. This didn't stop Americans like Brittany Griner from going to Russia. There are some possible solutions here. When it comes to the Americans currently detained in these countries, the US government should use all the leverage it has to bring these Americans home first and then punish the hostage takers before they take any more hostages. The second solution, every time an American buys a ticket to a country like Russia, the ticket purchasing process should have the US travel advisory for that country pop up and require the customer to sign saying they have read and understood the advisory as well as the risks of traveling to that country and also agree that should they choose to go there anyway, the US government may not be able to secure their release if they are wrongfully detained. Elizabeth, in your opinion, what should the US government do? Well, first, Darren, thank you very much for laying out so very clearly how um, trading or doing whatever you need to to get your people home does not incentivize hostage taking, but deter not having any deterrence does. That was beautifully done. And I love, and I'm sure the State Department would as well, <laughs> love your idea about having to click on something when you buy a ticket because it's 
it makes no sense to say after the fact, well, I didn't think that would happen to me. <laughs> um, you really do. And, and it is, I don't think most uh, tourists really think about going and checking out what the State Department advisories say. Although we have seen the one for Russia over the years just get you know, more and more um, in your face. Right now, it's sort of like neon lights saying, do not go to Russia. If you're there, leave. I mean, they can't state it any more clearly than they are. You know, I don't know when it comes to deterrence exactly what to do either for exactly the same problem that you said. You know, if you do it at one point, maybe it hurts the people who are there. Uh, how, how do you go about um, actually forcing the situation? But I think part of deterrent um, involves, well, two levels. First, it involves many countries working together to impose whatever punishments they need to, to stop, because it's not just Americans who are being wrongfully detained. Um, you know, people from other countries uh, are also held wrongfully in in Russia and, and elsewhere. Um, I think the other part, though, is that we tend to look at the U.S. government as, as they are the only key to, uh, you know, to deterrence and to getting people out. And that allows large corporations and businesses to act without any restrictions really on their activities. So a country can continue, can do the worst things, can arrest your, the citizens of that country, uh, but businesses can still operate. Um, you know, uh, it, they can still provide money to the um, aggressive country. They can, they can still have relations of certain types. It's almost as if businesses allowed this avenue into the country, which the U.S. government may be trying to restrict from a diplomatic point of view. And that undermines efforts to get Americans home. And I would like to see the business community, the large corporations, for example, who have done business in Russia, many of whom have left because of the war on Ukraine, but not all, and some have actually gone back. This has got to stop. We need a unified effort. This has to be not just a whole of government approach to deterrence, but a whole of country and a whole of world approach, uh, a global response to hostage taking. I absolutely agree. Um, now, one country that is notorious for hostage diplomacy is Iran. They are currently holding hostage seven French nationals, including a French-Irish dual national, two Germans, two Swedes, three Austrians, one Spanish citizen, and one Belgian citizen. And these are just the publicly known cases. Members of the European Union have started calling on the EU leadership to come up with an EU-wide approach to tackle Iran's hostage diplomacy. I spoke to a couple people on this, including former US Ambassador Peter Romero and Jose Pereira, an American from Texas who was wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela for almost five years. And they recommend that we come up with a United Nations level approach to tackle hostage diplomacy. US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has apparently suggested that we come up with something similar to the convention banning the use of chemical and biological weapons in war to tackle hostage diplomacy, especially from a deterrence perspective. Um, the Canadian-led declaration against arbitrary detention in state-to-state -state relations could be a good starting point here, as it names the problem and has 67 signatories, including the US and UK. 
Elizabeth, what are your thoughts on what the international community should do? Well, I agree completely that we need something that is uh, UN level. I think what is what frustrates families often is to see, you know, we've got this situation, for example, with Russia. There's my brother uh, sitting in prison, wrongfully detained. Now we have Evan, likewise. And yet we're watching, um, you know, Putin jet around the, the world to, to this, uh, well, maybe not anymore. He's sitting at a very long table. <laughs> but in the past, he was, he was able to go to, you know, G20 meeting. Now we've got uh, representatives from Russia coming to, uh, to the UN at the end of the month. I think it's very frustrating to see that even though we have these huge problems, that um, there isn't a, a way to sort of attack the whole issue of wrongful detention when we are um, allowing this kind of latitude of, of movement and engagement. And so I think that to be able to enact something at those same levels, whether it's at the UN or, or whatever it happens to be, that um, where we can target the the country and not only that, but the people who are there to represent that country uh, until we get our people back. The, the point is, we need our folks back. All of these countries want their citizens returned, and we need hostage diplomacy to stop. It's that simple. That means what? Letting go several dozen people around the world. <laughs> uh, it's probably more than that. But um, And then not doing it again. It's quite simple. The solution is quite simple. It's all on the aggressive, aggressor country, though, to make that happen. So news outlets have a lot of power. They have the power to shine a light on an issue, making it visible to the whole world. They have the power to pressure institutions and governments to take immediate action. And the case of Evan Gershkovich is a great example. He was designated as wrongfully detained by the US Secretary of State within 10 days of being detained. It took Paul Whelan 13 months to get the same designation, even though Paul and Evan's charges were similar. The key difference here was the global and constant media coverage of Evan's case. With great power comes great responsibility. Another point to note here is this. Countries that practice hostage diplomacy are notorious for charging innocent people with ridiculous false charges. They then use their state-affiliated media to spread these false allegations and smear this innocent person's reputation. International news outlets must understand what the hostage-taking state is doing and not assist these countries in ruining an innocent person's reputation by repeating the hostage-taking state's false accusations. Elizabeth, what do you think journalists and news outlets should do? Well, those are extremely good points. Um, we've, been, we've been fortunate that over the years now, we've had a lot of interaction with uh, media outlets, with journalists, with re reporters on television, who have started to really understand what wrongful detention is all about. But up front, it was very difficult because... Um, News outlets wanted the sensational story and they wanted they, – they forgot about the American, the innocent victim of this situation, and they wanted to gin up the story to make it as exciting as possible to get clicks. That's not responsible journalism. And we have a certain amount of frustration right now with some of the coverage we see when uh, journalists are, are speaking about Evan as if he was the first person uh, – arrested on espionage charges in Russia. And if lucky, we uh, Paul gets you know a, a sentence mentioned. We would like to see balanced reporting about what is going on um, that includes Paul, 
because the situations that Paul and Evan are going through are, are very similar. Uh, people seem to have forgotten that Paul spent 19 months or so in Lefortevo and has a has a deep understanding of, of what that whole experience was like. Our family can speak to some of the things that happened to Paul during his time there. It's a... Uh, it's frustrating because I do think that some of these journalists have only just woken up to the issue because it's closer to them now. And so they're able to report in a very uh, overwhelming sort of way the number of articles that have suddenly popped out. Now, of course, I like I said before, I don't begrudge Evan this because any of us would want it. Paul has been able to, over the years, as I said, get quite a good amount of, of media support. And we really appreciate that. But there are many other people who have been wrongfully detained who have not been covered by the media in this way. And are why are they any less deserving? Why, why should their stories not be told just as much? I think we have to look at the role journalism plays in helping educate the general public to this awful practice of wrongful detention and helping get people on board to to do something about it and not just looking at the short term hey is this going to get clicks is this going to get read is this going to be uh you know a story that i can I file really quickly and so we are looking for that type of journalism that is more helpful that helps us the country trying to get the people back and doesn't help the aggressor country like russia by spreading more disinformation now when it comes to members of the public there are many things they can do not just to free paul whelan and evan gershkovich but to put an end to hostage diplomacy as i mentioned earlier there are two ways to put an end to hostage diplomacy punish the hostage takers and raise awareness of hostage diplomacy worldwide so everyone is aware of the risk and stops traveling to these countries before making plans to travel to another country, please first read the travel advisory for that country issued by your state department or foreign ministry. Even if you have visited a country many times before without any issues, it doesn't mean you're not going to have any problems the next time you go. Both Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner have visited Russia several times before. I've spoken to former hostages who knew there was a risk of being wrongfully imprisoned but thought to themselves, if I just mind my own business, stay away from anything political, I'll be fine. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Countries like Iran have arrested foreign and dual nationals who were in the country on holiday as tourists or just visiting family. When countries like the US or UK warned their citizens against traveling to another country like Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela, North Korea or Syria, the citizens most likely to push back are dual nationals individuals who are born in one of these countries. These individuals tend to have family members in these countries and travel there to visit them frequently. I understand their situation. In an ideal world where everyone obeys international law and norms, we should all be able to visit family or travel to another country without being taken hostage or wrongfully detained. Unfortunately, we don't live in an ideal world and frankly never have. It is still a goal we should all be working towards, but it is not the reality we currently live in. American businessman Kai Lee from New York went to his country of birth, China, in September 2016 to visit family as they were organizing a memorial to commemorate the one-year anniversary of his mother's passing. As soon as Kai landed at Pudong International Airport, he was arrested and has been wrongfully imprisoned in China since. There are similar cases with other Americans currently held in Iran, 
and Syria. Please pay attention to travel advisories. Governments don't make these decisions lightly when they tell you not to travel to other countries. Now, Elizabeth, what do you think the public can do to help? Well, I just want to, I want to underline and highlight everything you just said and how important it is. And, and perhaps this will help put it in perspective. Prisons overseas, like in Russia, are not like prisons in America. Um, you will not have people able to come and access uh, your loved one. You know, Paul, um, the food is, is so bad that we have to supplement his food. And right now that's very difficult to do in Russia. Um, the effect of the sanctions is such that um, fruit and vegetables and things like that are no longer available to Paul to buy independently um, at the prison. Uh, communication is going to be cut off um, because of censorship. It can often take six months for a letter to go back and forth. Um, if there isn't somebody who can read English wherever you, at that particular prison, uh, they won't let the letters go um, either way. So your loved one is cut off from uh, communication. At Lafortevo, where Paul was held, we were not able to speak to him by phone for 19 months at all. Uh, and once again, letters were held up and consular access was restricted. So it's not as if you can just call a lawyer or get out on bail or house arrest or anything of the sort. If a country sees that blue passport um, and says, hey, we're going to get something for this, they're going to hold you and they're going to make your life as difficult as possible to raise your value so they can get something out of the U.S. It is the job of the U.S. State Department and the National Security Council to Start creating an environment whereby when a country sees that blue passport, they are actually concerned and afraid that they had better have arrested an American on the correct charges. Uh, right now, that is not an environment that exists. And if you're going to Russia for any reason whatsoever, you can see how difficult it is for even, even for the president for the White House, for the National Security Council, Congress, the State Department, everyone who cares about Paul Whelan, they have still not been able to get him out. So please take that to heart. Elizabeth, what's the best way for our listeners to keep up to date with the Free Paul Whelan campaign? Well, we do have um, a website, freepaulwhelan.com, and we post the updates there that we send out to media. Um, we're, we have, as I said, been pretty lucky that if you you know Google Paul Whelan and news right now, you'll you'll find quite a bit. But if you want to know how this has gone over the last four years and four months, uh, there's an updates page um, where we update every every week or two uh, with what's happening. And also there, you can find the address to write to Paul. Your letter might take a long time to get there, but uh, he has been able to get a substantial amount of his mail and. We also pass on inf uh, messages to him to help keep him his spirits up. We're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? There's, there is one point that I think needs to be made very clearly to the United States government. You know, there's a lot of dissension that we have seen around Brittany Griner's release and now what will be done to get Evan home um, concerning the idea that only public pressure um, is what is needed to to be able to get action for your loved one. Um, it's something the Whelan family is questioning. You know, Paul has not been able to come home. Uh, he has been left behind. Will the public pressure we now see for Evan also result in his release without 
polls. We are certainly hopeful that the U.S. government realizes at this point that the only correct solution is to bring both of them home. But I would like to urge the United States government to consider what they do and how they cause families to think that public pressure is what is needed. When phone calls are made to certain families and not to others, when attention is given to certain families and not to others, when names are spoken out loud uh, uh, of certain detainees and not others, This creates a great deal of stress and heartache and tension on the part of the families who are all trying equally hard to get their loved ones home. Now, any of us who have received that attention, for example, um, I never got any phone calls from President Trump or President Biden until I made a fuss when President Biden called uh, and and. Vice President Harris called Brittany Griner's family, and since then I've had quite a bit of communication with the White House, and I'm grateful for it, and I'm going to uh, be happy every time I do have that kind of communication. But there are other families who haven't had anywhere near that kind of access. And I hope as we see the Robert Levinson Act um, implemented over time, and as the various different entities working on hostage diplomacy get better at what they're doing, that we also see a great degree of equity about how the internal resources or the public, um, uh, the public messaging around all of these families, how that is distributed. Every one of these detainees deserves the same amount of attention publicly, as well as the same amount of effort behind the scenes. I absolutely agree. Elizabeth, I've said this to you every time we've spoken and I'll say it again. We'll be right here campaigning by your side until your brother Paul Whelan is back home. We hope that Evan Gershkovich is also freed and reunited with his family too. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much, Darren, for all you do for all of us. Thank you for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. Thank you for giving your time and for showing these families that they're not alone, that there are good caring people out there willing to stand by their side and help in any way possible. Um, Because if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. Um, This is a basic um, rule of thumb that is true for all campaigning. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our fortnightly newsletter called The Hostage Briefing. It's the best way to keep up to date with the cases we're working on, as well as new episodes. You can subscribe to this newsletter using the link in the description of this podcast episode that you're currently listening to. Thanks again and take care.